Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. So today we're flying all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and landing in Colombia. Yes, and it's high time because there's an important experiment going on there, right? Yeah, all I know is that it's really complicated what exactly they're doing with truth and reconciliation. I'm sure we'll get into all of the detail, what happened since Colombia's long war ended in 2016's a peace agreement, lots of different entities to provide accountability. So to help us, we asked our wonderful intern, Ilaria Molinari, to do the research and help us find our way. You'll know her voice from the new intros we're doing. Hi, Ilaria. Hi, Stephanie Janet, and hi, everyone. So what are we looking into exactly? So I thought we could start by listening to this. It is from back in May 2018, and it's uh, Father Francisco de Roo, who became president of the Commission for Truth in Colombia. And this is him speaking at the inauguration of the commission. Our collaboration will be precisely to reach as far as possible all the victims. We are making an effort to collect data from everywhere, and we want not only to listen to all, but also start a conversation in Colombia among the whole world, so that it is felt that truth is a heritage for all Colombians. So um, really high ideals set up there. Is that exactly what we're going to be talking about, how those have you know, come into practice in the end? Yeah, definitely. Uh, But I think I also do need to set the scene a little bit before we move on. The Truth Commission is just one arm of a pretty complex system. Uh, It was put in place after a peace agreement was signed in 2016, at the end of the year, uh, between Colombian government and the FARC rebels. Uh, They are a very powerful left-wing guerrilla group. And uh, the peace deal was signed after around 50 years of internal conflict. So it was a really, really long conflict. And the deal itself was very controversial in uh, Colombia. At first, it was shut down with a popular referendum. Afterwards, it was agreed upon through Congress, said it very, very briefly. The peace agreement asked FARC to depose their weapons. And in exchange, uh, the government gave them the right to fund their own party and to have 10 congressional seats. And there are other things going on. What else is there apart from a truth commission? Yeah, as I said, the truth commission was just one part of this entire system. There's also a judicial arm. It's called the the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, JEP. And uh, the jurisdiction investigates crimes committed during the conflict up to 2016. But I think I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I think first we should hear also from uh, Mariana Casir-Pena, She runs the Colombia Office of the Institutes for Integrated Transitions. Uh, It's an NGO that specializes in justice and transition after conflict. And uh, here she explains pretty well how complicated transitional justice can be and also how this new Colombian system really, really stands out. When we're talking about transitional justice, inevitably you're going to be talking about experiment because you need to be innovative. And you need to make sure that you're not copy pasting, but rather adapting whatever lessons or good practices that you have seen to the actual context 
uh, and the, the dynamics, the, uh, the local dynamics uh, to which uh, the, the tools are being implemented. But here in Colombia, actually, what was decided and what was created was a system. And this system is a system to, re to respond to the right for truth, justice, reparation, and non-repetition. So this system has actually separate entities that would respond, one would respond to the right to the truth, one would, one would respond to the right of justice, one would respond to the right of non-repetition, and one would respond to a right of reparations. So in justice, we have, we have created, and this is actually a very innovative decision, because for the first time in history, actually, it was decided among two parties at the negotiating table that they would agree on creating a special jurisdiction or, or a special uh, tribunal, if you like, which would judge, which would look into the crimes that were committed within the armed conflict, and it would judge those most responsible for the most atrocious crimes. So it was decided between the parties that, yes, we would give some concessions, we would give amnesties to those who hadn't committed the most gravest crimes. But those who were the most responsible for the atrocities committed within the armed conflict, they would appear before this tribunal and they would respond before the victims and before the Colombian society for those atrocities. I should also say a few words about the JEP. They are investigating crimes committed by all sides. So. FARC rebels, the military, other parties, civilians, etc. And they have quite a lot of handle. Uh, they have six macro cases and then these six micro cases get split in sub cases. And what is interesting is that if the people they charge admit to their crimes and can accept responsibility, they can also avoid jail time. And instead, instead of going to prison, they get to participate in uh, reconciliation efforts. How does that work exactly, the participating in reconciliation efforts? What are they doing? Um, I mean, it can be different things. Uh, for example, the removal of landmines. It can be building infrastructure in affected areas and poor areas. And according to the president of the JEP, Eduardo Cifuentes Muñoz, this is something that really makes this Colombian project stand out, makes it special because we can see perpetrators working actually for the victims in projects that hopefully are going to undo the effects of these decades of war and especially help the communities that they damage the most. But I also remember we've heard some news out of the JEP itself um, earlier this year, some details of what they've been investigating. So what's that? Yes, this year there's been quite a bit of press about uh, the so-called falsos positivos case, the false positives case, uh, which is one of these six macro cases that the JEP is investigating. So false positives, what does that mean? So the Colombian army, during these decades-long efforts to defeat FARC, uh, turns out strongly encouraged its soldiers to keep a high kill count. So what happened was that entire military units proceeded to find civilians, uh, usually poor civilians, a lot of times indigenous and sometimes homeless, disabled individuals. And then they proceeded to summarily execute them. They threw the bodies in mass graves and then they officially counted them as uh, FARC casualties. So here is Jose Miguel Vivanco. He's the director for Americas, for the Americas of Human Rights Watch. 
And he was talking in February of this year, 2021, to uh, a radio program in Colombia. And he explained how extraordinary this case was. There are no similar examples in the world. We have investigated this issue very carefully. We found out that in Vietnam there was also the temptation to fall into a frenzy in a game of numbers, a temptation to inflate the figures, and indeed there was. But the transformation into a business, and the officers and soldiers involved in these massacres benefiting from them, there really is no precedent for that. I'm sure we have figures of how many people died in these government-backed attacks, but something that also springs to mind is... Uh, uh, you know, how did the government check how many people were killed? Why not just inflate the figures and not kill anybody at all? Like, did they have to submit pictures from mass graves? How, how did that work? So, um, speaking about numbers, at least uh, 6,402 civilians were murdered. And this is just between the years 2002 and 2008. And these figures are according to findings by the JEP, uh, findings uh, from this year. And they even actually released an actual number for the whole period they were investigating, which goes from 1988 to 2014. So we don't really know how, how big we're talking about. It's a very shocking number, of course, but... The, even the, the worst part, I guess, is that the motives was quite banal, I must say, uh, and it was pretty much to obtain rewards. So it could be medals, it could be extra money, it could be even vacation days. And as per your question, Stephanie, it's a really good question. And I, to be honest, I haven't found an answer clearly spelled out. Uh, but what it looks like to me was that these killings came from a very, very ruthless policy about dealing with FARC, which came from the very, very top. And I mean, once the idea became that capturing FARC was not good enough, and instead FARC needed to be physically eradicated, then soldiers started getting rewards per number of killings. And then I guess it also became important to actually show the bodies, not just saying, oh yeah, we went out with the unit and we killed these many people. So, for example, this is data from uh, Human Rights Watch. Uh, it appears that soldiers, for example, who killed six enemies or more were eligible for bonuses up to, uh, at the time, $15,000. So, yeah, you can imagine. That's really extraordinary story. I'm just wondering, has anybody actually started to take responsibility for the policy that, that, that was behind this? Um, yes, I, I would say partially. For example, Juan Manuel Santos, he's the former president of Colombia. And at the time of uh, the spiking killings, uh, he was defense minister. He was defense minister between 2006 and 2009. And he recently apologized uh, this year, actually, in front of the Truth Commission. The gist of it is that he asks for forgiveness. He says it should have never happened and also promises it will never happen again. I thank you all who much contributed to investigating, reporting and ending such degradation of war with the FARC, a war that luckily ended. But I have remorse. I have deep regret that during my ministry, many, so many mothers lost their sons for this practice so ruthless. The innocent youth who should have been alive today, this should never have happened. I recognize that, 
may I ask you for forgiveness. To all the mothers and to all the families, victims of this horror, from the deepest of my soul, this will never, ever happen again. This is not something that happens a lot, I think, seeing someone so high up, owning up to the past, apologizing, which I guess it's, a good, um, it's good for reconciliation purposes, it's a good start. But what about actually in the judicial side? How is the JEP going to proceed with these cases? Uh, do we have some indictments yet? Yes, actually, it's uh, pretty recent. Uh, there were two uh, batches of indictments in July of this year. So in total, 25 former army officials were, uh, were indicted for extrajudicial executions and forced disappearances. And at the moment, we are waiting to see if they accept these charges. So if they accept these charges, they are going to be punished lightly. So they get five to eight years, no prison sentences. Or they can refuse the charges and then the cases would move to the adversarial court side of the uh, jurisdiction. And then in that case, they can get up to 20 years in prison. One thing that I also find interesting is that the way the JEP is proceeding in these cases is slightly different from how, for example, they tackled in the past the case of kidnappings by FARC. They are calling the investigation approach from the ground up because what they're doing is they are first building indictments in six subcases, and then they're going to use the information to understand how white, such widespread human rights violations could happen and how these violations found, you know, fertile brewing ground in that specific military culture. We know from the ICC that they also are, are, uh, want to build more cases from the ground up. Uh, how does this work in the Colombia case specifically in practice? Basically, they are first charging officers from specific regions in Colombia, and they are hoping to build then a case against top dogs in the army and in the government in the future. Instead, what they did with FARC kidnappings cases is that they, were the, they went the other way around. Uh, they were able to immediately charge commanders. And the difference basically is because the chain of command and the cause-effect nexus was quite clear in these FARC cases. But in the case of false positives, everything is a bit murkier. Uh, the fact is that uh, higher army leadership can easily claim that they never actually gave orders to kill civilians. But the truth is that they did create an environment where there was extreme pressure and encouragement in uh, showing high number of kills. So it is trickier to provide direct connection in this case. Fascinating to try to imagine what kind of uh, evidence they're going to need to, uh, to prove that uh, connection. But are there any specific names uh, that are coming out who might be caught up, people who are very senior in the army? Um, yes, the first name that comes to my mind is uh, General Mario Montoya, and he he is considered a national hero. He has been in the army forever, already in the 80s, the 90s, and he was a commander of the armed forces during those years where the killings really spiked. He was really at the top of his game in 2008 when the false positive scandal first broke out. And he resigned. I mean, he didn't mention the false positive case in his resignation, but I mean, it was pretty obvious that that was uh, the reason why he had to do that. Montoya has been talking to the JEP since 2018. 
uh, but apparently he hasn't really admitted to anything. And uh, the fact is there's a lot of uh, soldiers and officials that have been previously indicted by normal courts and have been condemned already. Uh, plus also some retrieved documents that said that he, when he was the head of armed forces, he actually encouraged military units to just consider killings of FARC as successes, not getting them as prisoners. And also there were testimonies that he personally ranked military units according to the number of kills that they performed. So is this general the highest ranking official that could be indicted or could we see former presidents also in the dock? Um, no, uh, the JEP cannot really indict former presidents. So I do think that Montoya would be the highest ranking officer. So far in the case, nothing really happened. Uh, I know that a prosecutor tried to charge him uh, in, in a normal court in uh, Bogota, in Colombia. Uh, but the judge in that case refused to proceed because he said that the JEP is the only body that can prosecute him, at least if he keeps cooperating in her quotes. So, I mean, I guess it's good for him because in normal court, he could get up to 50 years in prison, while with the JEP, I mean, provided that he gets charged and admits to wrongdoing, he can also get off with no prison at all. Staying on the case of Montoya, some NGOs just last month published this report called El Ejército del Norte. And uh, in this report, they show further documents of Montoya's involvement with extrajudicial killings. So I guess we'll see what happens in the next few months. What I can say is that if he was charged, it would be quite important because he is very close to former president Alvaro Uribe who was the main architect of the so-called democratic security policy in 2002, which meant heavily hitting FARC's militarily. And Montoya, again, I, as I said, is considered a hero by many. So indictment could be very, very divisive in Colombia. Do you see already that uh, division with this uh, highly controversial, highly political stuff? How are, how are ordinary Colombians dealing with it? Definitely, the country feels uh, still quite polarized. Um, for example, earlier this year, the JEP delivered a decision about the rebels, so the FARC and the kidnappings that they used to do. Uh, and in that case, seven top leaders were indicted. They acknowledged their responsibility. They asked for forgiveness and they received five to eight year sentences in non-prison settings. And this apparently made a lot of Colombians quite happy. But it's known, isn't it, that the FARC rebels were responsible actually for uh, lots of kidnappings and thousands of people were involved there. Uh, so even though they asked for forgiveness, maybe, and they've got these tiny sentences, it has, isn't that making a lot of people feel that they've got away too easily? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, when you also combine the FARC case with the false positive case, it's like, you know, the actions of the government and the army are on trial. And so, and I mean, many people still see Uribe's government and Montoya's army as the saviors of Colombia back then. So, you know, we heard earlier in the episode, ex-president Santos apologized, but uh, former president Uribe, who was president when the false positive spiked, uh, still to this day, he refuses to take responsibility. He says that, you know, this was just military bad apples that were looking for rewards and for glory. Uh, he's also a 
very, very big critic of the whole peace agreement. For example, he spoke recently, a couple of months ago, very publicly uh, with Father Deru from the Truth Commission. And I mean, it was a pretty tense conversation. And at some point he said that he respects Deru as a person and as a priest, but he considers Truth Commission and the rest of the transitional justice system illegitimate. Yeah, I guess he's not very happy with the various moves by the JEP either then. Yeah, definitely he's not. And uh, on top of that, he also called NGOs and I quote, politically motivated and sworn enemies of my government, end quote. Uh, he thinks the tribunal should only consider official state institutions as legitimate sources of information for false positives, which I find a bit laughable since they were the people who actually did that. And also he didn't claim the same in the kidnapping case against FARC. And I mean, it just looks like he feels attacked and that he feels that his hard work to deal with FARC is being unfairly criticized. So when I was researching, I could see that uh, the different strands of points of view in Colombia kind of reflect this duality. Many people didn't want the, agree the agreement to start with, and now they are kind of looking at the work of the JEP and at the Truth Commission, and they're looking at them with a bit of apprehension, I think. And again, Mariana explains it quite well here. This was one of the biggest fears. What is the special jurisdiction going to do? Is it just in place in order to ensure that there's going to be impunity for the crimes of the FARC? Or, or is it just in place in order to ensure that our militaries are going to be in jail for the rest of their life? Like, there's many fears around that special jurisdiction for peace, as there are around the Truth Commission. What is the truth? Who are those? who are within the Truth Commission and who are those to, to, to be able to say, you know, this is the historical truth of Colombia. So it looks like we're at a really uh, interesting stage in what's going on in Colombia. Well, what's going to happen now? So the mandate of the Truth Commission ends next year. It just got prolonged by nine months. And the JEP, on the other hand, is set to work for 10 years. Three years have already passed. So we can say one's job is almost done, while the other is still in full action right now. So again, we got Mariana to help us sum up and maybe look in her crystal ball and tell us not only the main challenges that she could see so far in this very complex truth and reconciliation process as a whole, but also what challenges she can see in the future. And here she is. There's still very big challenges with regards to legitimacy and how the decisions will be received by the Colombian society. But there's also the challenge of time, I think. Uh, administering justice takes time. Repairing more than 9 million victims takes time. Disclosing the truth for a conflict that lasted decades takes time. Uh, and even more so with the challenges that we're still living um, which is, you know, issues with regards to security in several territories where there's some organized crime, you know, taking advantage, taking control of several territories and the government not being able to handle everything. So I would say those are the main challenges. So if you would sum it up, is this the project a failure, a success, a mix of both? 
Um, answering that, I think, is above my pay grade. If I knew that, I wouldn't be an intern, I think. Uh, so I will leave it to Mariana to summarize. Um, I think that even with the challenges, we can already say, as I was mentioning, the, the very impactful results of the decision only with kidnapping or the impacts with regards to the extrajudicial killings by, by the militaries. There's already results. There's the, we already know things that we couldn't have known otherwise. Um, and there are scenarios that are being open so that people who wouldn't have talked, who wouldn't have faced each other, are being able to do so right now. Um, and there are victims who are getting a response to their rights. There's mothers who are being able to bury their sons because of the special unit for the search of the missing. So I wouldn't say success or failure. I'm saying there's very strong people moving these processes forward. And there's already many results. And there's still a lot to do with many challenges. But I think there's also, we have tools. And I would perhaps just leave it with a message of optimism. Well, that's a really good way, I think, to end the episode. Um, I really want to say thank you, Ilaria, for putting this all together. I know you're in the middle of job hunting at the moment. So uh, thanks for making the, the time to do all the research for us. Yeah, thank you. Yes, so this uh, also a shout out to all our listeners who might have a job for our lovely Ilaria. Um, we have a lot more to say, obviously, about Colombia at some point, but I'm glad we got started on it. And we're very happy that we could actually task Ilaria with finding all this out because this was an immense research effort. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. It was both uh, exciting and scary, which I guess it's what uh, podcasts are supposed to be anyway. So. And I'm sure that we do have some listeners who are even more expert uh, on this than, than the three of us. So get in touch with us if uh, you'd like to contribute to another edition on Columbia in the future. I think we've got next week, haven't we, Stephanie? Uh, we're going to be playing the interviews we've done about the International Law Commission and a couple of the candidates that we caught up with. Is that right? Yeah, we spoke to Dapo Akande and Phoebe Okoa, and we learned a lot about the International Law Commission, which was another thing we didn't know very much about. So like this Columbia episodes, it's also these podcasts are sometimes also Janet and me trying to figure out what is going on of this thing we've heard something about when we haven't really delved in. So thank you very much for bearing with us. And we hope that you also learned something this week. Bye bye. 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 This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.